Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 14, Colonization and the West. We can date when the polis began to develop because of colonization throughout the Mediterranean. Since these colonies appeared in the form of the polis, that must have been the characteristic style of the cities sending them out. This emigration began about the middle 8th century BC and continued for almost two centuries. When it ended around 600 BC, the Greek world extended from eastern Spain in the west to the eastern coast of the Black Sea in the east. Essentially, the Greeks were scattered all across the Mediterranean and Black Seas, so much so that Plato later said that the Greeks sit like frogs around the pond. The Greek colonies in Anatolia by this point were developed in such a way that they too were able to colonize. It should be noted that this was not like the migrations to Anatolia during the Dark Age, though, which was sort of a ripple effect of people displaced from their lands due to the upheaval at the end of the Bronze Age. These colonies were organized shifts of population, from one community sent out to establish a new community. In fact, with this renewed sense of a shared Greek identity, and the spread of Greek ideas through literacy, colonization gave the Greeks an opportunity to export Greek culture to dozens of new lands. But this shouldn't be thought of as some one-way street. There was definitely some cultural reciprocity taking place. Colonization promoted further this notion of Panhellenism that we discussed a few episodes ago. The Greeks were being planted on faraway, strange lands, and it occurred to them even more the contrast between Greeks and non-Greeks. Furthermore, many colonies were joint undertakings and contained a mixture of citizens from various polis. All of the dates are a combination of Greek tradition and archaeology to come up with a general time frame. The Halkidians were among the earliest prolific Greek colonizers of the Archaic period. Others included Eretria, Corinth, Megara, Achaea, Phokia, and Miletus. They were all coastal towns with fertile territory, but were prevented from expanding due to natural obstacles or by powerful neighboring states, hence the need to expand overseas. Sparta initially colonized, but then stopped. Athens did not send out any until the 6th century BC, and Thebes never sent out any colonies. There are various reasons why the Greeks wanted to leave their homes and travel to foreign lands in order to establish colonies. As we have discussed previously, the primary belief is that with high mountains and scarce plains in Greece, there must have been a shortage of farmland and thus food due to population growth in connection with the growth of the polis, so they needed to relocate in order to survive. Later Greeks themselves saw colonization as a cure for land hunger and overpopulation. Plato in his Laws explicitly states that colonists were sent out like a swarm of bees to relieve the pressure of land shortage. Thucydides also reflects this belief, saying, For they, especially those who had insufficient land, made expeditions against the islands and subdued them. Also, it's likely that all of these developments led to factionalism in some of the polis, which in turn led to civil strife, and the losing side probably would have fled either for safety or because they did not want to live under the thumb of their opponents. Furthermore, there must have been at least a few who just left because it was becoming popular and they wanted adventure and fortune. Thus the polis that colonized the most were located where most of the trade was happening, had internal problems by means of economic or political strife, or were very small in size. We do not hear of any such problems going on in Athens, Thebes, or Sparta during this time. Since they possessed large domestic territories, population pressure seems unlikely. 
Trade did, however, play a significant role in the colonizing movement. It was the traders who knew where the best land might be available. And traders would be interested in a colony, which could also be a market for exchanging goods from the mother city, called a metropolis, for raw materials obtained from natives. Although political power rested in most cities with the landowning nobility and not with the merchants, the nobles of these coastal cities setting forth colonies were not blind to the wealth that could come from busy harbors. However, it's vital at the outset to make a clear distinction between these new colonies, called an apokia, meaning a home away, and an emporion, or trading station, both of which are present from the 8th century BC onward. The Apokia was an independent city from the start, which had its own government, laws, and foreign policy, and whose inhabitants were citizens of the colony and not of the mother city. They usually maintained religious and cultural links and traded with their mother cities, but they were self-governing and self-sufficient. The Emporion, by contrast, was a strictly commercial trading post, which was formed by traders from different Greek city-states, even by non-Greeks. We already discussed two emporia in episode 9, when we talked about Almina and Pithecusae. There was a long process in order to establish an apokia. Somebody who wanted to establish one, called an okistos, needed to have eminence so that people would accept his leadership and judgment. Thus, he must have been a nobleman, but not part of the ruling faction, or he would have had no reason to leave. In order to gain allowance from his polis, he needed to have a specific location in mind. He may have come across this while traveling and believed that it would be very fruitful or received advice from traders. The site for the colony needed to be well defensible, have fertile land or natural resources, and a good harbor for accessible trade. Then he had to gain approval from the Delphic Oracle. If the Okistos received a yes, then he was able to draw up a charter for the new city, mapping out its government structure, how the land is to be allotted, selecting the patron deity, and so forth. Then he needed to recruit men to come along to make the Apokia viable by defending the city against hostile natives and carrying out civic functions. He could recruit at the local festivals where many people were easily gathered. Colonists usually were a group of 100 to 200 unmarried men of fighting age. It is unclear whether they sent for Greek women once the colony was established or just married from the locals, however. If they came into trouble, the Greek settlers were able to defeat more populous natives because the phalanx was a much more equipped fighting force than anything the locals had seen before. Once the decision to found a colony had been made, it was the Akistos who was responsible for its success. He had to lead the colonists to their new home, lay out the colony's defenses, locate where the sanctuaries of the gods were to be held, and assign house plots and farmland to the settlers. If the Akistos fulfilled his duties wisely, he would become the ruler of a new polis, and its guardian hero after his death. The colony itself would be linked to its mother city by bonds of kinship and cult, symbolized by the fire the Akistos brought from the metropolis's hearth to kindle the hearth of the new polis, so that the cults of the gods would be properly observed in the new colony. Priests also migrated from the metropolis. Otherwise, however, the colony was a new and completely independent polis. Oftentimes, once the Okistos died, he would get a cult in his honor. The Greeks loved to trace all of the institutions of a community to one great legendary founder, and the colonial narrative fits right into that. When the Greeks were setting up a new apokia, they didn't lay it out according to their polis, but instead based off of a grid plan that divided the city into three parts. 
sacred land, public land, and private land, which Aristotle and his politics wrongly attributed to Hippodamus of Miletus of the 5th century BC. Archaeological evidence, however, shows that the grid pattern developed much earlier in the 8th century BC. Hippodamus may have made it famous, but he didn't invent it. The evidence comes from Megara Hiblia, a Sicilian colony that was destroyed in the 5th century BC and not inhabited again, which has allowed us to recover the original town plan of the archaic Greek city. Reconstruction of the history of the colonizing movement is difficult. The literary tradition concerning Greek colonization is encumbered with legends intended to connect various colonies to their heroic age and to establish divine sanction for their foundation. Stripped of these legendary accretions, the Greek sources preserve little more than a bare skeleton of dates of colonial foundations, names of founding cities, and sometimes of okistoi as well. Archaeology has made it possible for historians to overcome the limitations of the written sources by confirming the general chronology of colonial foundations, revealing the details of colonial city planning, and providing evidence for relations between the colonists and their non-Greek neighbors and the trade routes that link the colonies to the Greek homeland. Archaeological evidence also indicates that the colonizing movement had two phases, each lasting a little over a century. The first began about the mid-8th century BC and was directed to Italy and the Western Mediterranean. The second started about a half century later and was concentrated on the Northern Aegean and the Black Sea. It was when Italy and the Black Sea were still unknown and men were beginning to explore their coasts that the tale of the wanderings of Odysseus took form. So in this way, we can see Homer's poem as a metaphor for this adventuring spirit of colonization that exploded forth. At a time when the Greeks knew so little of Italy that the southern promontories could be designated as sacred islands, the Straits of Messana were identified with Scylla and Charybdis, Lepara became the island of Aeolus. The home of the Cyclopes was found in the fiery mountain of Etna. Scyria, the island of the Phaeacians, was fancied to be Corsaira. An entrance to the underworld was placed at Cumai, and the rocks of the Sirens were sought near Sorrento. Odysseus was not the only hero developed in the 8th century BC who sailed westward with Greek ships. Myths regarding Minos and Daedalus, for example, had links with Sicily. Above all, the earliest navigation of the western seas was ascribed to Heracles who reached the limits of the land of the setting sun and stood on the ledge of the world, looking out upon the stream of Oceanus. From him, the opposite cliffs, which formed the gate of the Mediterranean, were called the Pillars of Heracles, the modern-day Straits of Gibraltar between Spain and Morocco. Aside from legend, the pioneers in the colonization of Italy were Eubians from Halkis and Eretria, the same peoples who had helped to maintain contact between Greece and the Near East during the Dark Age. As we mentioned in episode 9, the Eubians and Phoenicians jointly founded their first settlement on the island of Ischia at Pithecusae in the Bay of Naples in the early 8th century BC. Around 740 BC, the Greeks founded Cumae on the Italian coastline. It had the dual benefit of having cultivatable land to support the booming population of Pithecusae and became the first Greek community with which the Etruscans and then the Romans had contact. We mentioned in episode 9 that it was through Cumae that the Latins learned to write, and thus the Greek alphabet influenced the development of the Latin alphabet. They also introduced the neighboring Italic peoples, those being the Latins, Oscans, Umbrians, and Etruscans, to a knowledge of the Greek gods and Greek religion. 
Heracles, Apollo, Castor, and Pollux became such familiar names in Italy that they came to be regarded as original Italian deities. The oracles of the Cumaean Sibyl, prophetess of Apollo, were believed to contain the destinies of Rome. After the foundation of Cumae, the Greeks poured into southern Italy and Sicily. There were no colonies attempted to be established in northern Italy, though, because of the Etruscans, but Cumae down to eastern Sicily was heavily colonized by the Greeks. In fact, this portion was so heavily Greek that the Romans later called it Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece. Southern Italy and Sicily were attractive for their fertile land, natural resources, good harbors, and a lack of regional power to challenge their independence. In particular, Sicily was a breadbasket for the export of grain. But Sicily's importance goes far beyond agriculture, as it is in the center of the Mediterranean and parts the eastern from the western waters. It has thus been a place of contention for centuries between European and Asiatic peoples. It attracted settlers from both sides, who have tried to control the island and thus control the trade in the Mediterranean. There were three indigenous groups on ancient Sicily, the Elmians in the west, the Sicani in the center, and the Sicils in the east, the latter also inhabiting the southern portion of Italy. Finds of pottery and copper ingots indicate that the island traded with late Bronze Age peoples, such as the Mycenaeans and Cypriots. The Phoenicians arrived in Sicily first in the early 8th century BC and established commercial relationships with the natives, but they didn't penetrate far inland and ultimately established sites at Solus, modern-day Salento, and Panormis, modern-day Palermo, on the northwestern coastline, and at Macha, a small island off the western coast of Sicily. With the coming of Greek colonists to the eastern part of the island, the Sicils were forced out of most of the advantageous port sites and withdrew into the hinterland with the Sicani. As the expansionist Greeks moved westward on the island, all of the natives were eventually absorbed into or influenced by Greek culture. The lack of serious opposition to the Greeks in Sicily shows that the Phoenicians were not yet strong rivals, or at least they didn't see them as rivals. It was only when the Phoenician colony on the North African coast, Carthage, had grown up that the Greeks had to fear Phoenician hostility. At the time of Greek colonization, Carthage was probably less than two generations old, but rest assured, the Greeks and the Carthaginians would come to blows soon enough and would be rivals for supremacy over Sicily for many centuries down the road. It was naturally on the eastern coast of Sicily, which faces opposite of Greece, that the first Greek settlements were made. According to Thucydides, in 734 BC, the first Greek Sicilian colony, Naxos, was established by the Halkidians, led by their Oikistos, Thucles, on the northeastern coast of the island, a little north of Mount Etna. Later authors state that the body of colonists from Halkis mingled with a certain number of Ionians. Since the island of Naxos in the Aegean Sea was an Ionian island, it's probably likely that they were present among the original settlers and hence gave their name to the new settlement. It's perhaps that the Halkidians noticed the advantageousness of this site while sailing back and forth to Pithecusae, as they had with Cumae. In any event, Thucydides remarks that the memory of Naxos as the earliest of all the Greek settlements in Sicily was preserved by the dedication of an altar outside the town where the Greeks first landed to Apollo, the divine patron under whose authority the colony had sailed. And it was a custom that all envoys proceeding on sacred missions to Greece or returning from Greece to Sicily, should offer sacrifice on this altar. 
The next year, in 733 BC, the Corinthians founded Syracusae, or the anglicized Syracuse, on the southeastern coastline. The nucleus of the ancient city was the small island of Ortigia, chosen for its natural harbors and spring water, but the community quickly spread to the mainland, both settlements being linked by a man-made causeway. The settlers found the land very fertile. Corinth was renowned for its commercial enterprise, but the founding of Syracuse was achieved under the leadership of Archias and his followers, who came from the inland village of Tania, and they, being farmers, not seafarers, were primarily concerned with Syracuse's agricultural production. At the same time, Corinth also colonized Corsaira, modern-day Corfu, an island in the Ionian Sea adjacent to Epirus in northwestern Greece. Which colony was sent out first we do not know, but force was needed for both enterprises, as the Eretrians had to be driven from Corsaira and the Sickles from Syracuse. Thucydides reports that six years after its foundation, in 728 BC, the Naxians had already grown strong enough that Thucles was joined by fresh settlers from Halkis to colonize Leontini, while a man named Evarchus founded Catana. Both sites were to the south of Naxos and to the north of Syracuse. In doing so, like the Syracusans, they had to drive off the sickles with arms. Leontini was virtually the only Greek settlement in Sicily that was not located on the coast, founded around six miles inland. The site was seized by the Greeks for command of their fertile plain. Catana was close to the sea, protected by a low range of hills, and sat at the foot of Mount Etna. By holding Syracuse, Corinth effectively prevented any further Halkidian expansion southwards, though. According to Thucydides, Megara also tried to establish a colony on the eastern coast of Sicily, between Naxos and Syracuse, around the founding of Leontini and Catania. They tried a few locations, but neither seemed to work out. They even tried to join the Halkidians at Leontini, but they weren't having it. But at 726 BC, after their Ochistos died, a man named Lamas, they firmly established what would be known as Megara Hiblia, south of Leontini and north of Syracuse. Because they merged with the native Hebla at the behest of the local sickle king Heblon, with whom they had very good relations. In 725 BC, Zankel was founded on the Sicilian side of the straits between Sicily and the toe of the Italian peninsula. Strabo states that this was a colony of Naxos, but Thucydides says it was of Cumai, led by Pereris, and were joined by settlers from Halkis, led by Cratamenes. In any event, Due to its shortage of cultivatable land, its foundation can only be explained by the Halkidian need to control the straits and the trade route to Pithecusae. This lack of agricultural land led Zankel to send settlers a little bit later to found Mylai, 20 miles to the west. Having taken possession of one side of the straits, it made sense for the Greeks to sail across the water and settle Regium on the Italian side in the region of Calabria around 720 BC. Now the Halkidians had complete control over the strait. The Mycenaeans, driven out of Mycenae because they were unwilling to come to terms with Sparta following the First Mycenaean War, joined the Halkidians in settling Regium. The strait would later be called the Strait of Messana, and Zonkel would be renamed Messana. The Strait of Messana is famous for its natural whirlpool in the northern portion of the strait, and thus has been linked to the Greek legend of Scylla and Charybdis. 
Halkus clearly enjoyed early prosperity in Sicily, but that would soon change. Around this time, the Lelantine War began back in Euboea, and as we saw last episode, it may have lasted until around the mid-7th century BC, after which the Eubeans lost their economic and political importance. In any event, whereas the Halkidians and Corinthians were the most active participants in colonizing Sicily, the Achaean states on the southern shore of the Corinthian Gulf took the lead in migration to southern Italy. Two important colonies were founded in the fertile lands on the instep of Italy. Sybaris around 720 BC and Croton around 710 BC. Strabo mentioned Sybaris was an Achaean colony. Aristotle writes the Achaeans were accompanied by a number of Trozenian citizens, but they were eventually expelled by the more numerous Achaeans. In any event, together with Regium, Sybaris and Croton would become flourishing cities in the region of Calabria. The Spartans didn't need to colonize because they conquered Messenia and gained all of its territory to handle their population pressure. However, they did send out one colony into Italy, but this one was for political reasons. We will cover the Messenian Wars in greater detail in future episodes, but 20 years away from home is a long time, and the Spartan women had refused to put their love life on hold. So they turned to non-citizen Spartans in the outlying villages to please them. As we will learn later, not all people from Laconia were given citizenship. In any event, when the Spartan men returned home, they were surprised to see a whole new generation waiting for them. These bastard children, known as the Parthenai, were the sons of unmarried women, meaning illegitimate Spartans, were cast out of Sparta in 706 BC. They had organized a rebellion, but were finally persuaded to depart for southern Italy to establish a colony ridding the Spartans of their political problem. They sailed across the Adriatic Sea to the southeastern peninsula, or heel, of Italy and found it Terras, Tarentum in Latin, and it became a Doric city in its dialect and institutions. It would continue to be an exile point for any non-Spartan living in Laconia who was an annoyance. The prosperity of the Tarentines depended partly on the cultivation of a fertile territory, but mainly on their manufacturing industry. Their fabrics and dyed wools became renowned, and their pottery was widely distributed. Terrace, in fact, would be regarded as an industrial rather than an agricultural state. Terrace's position would bring them into contact with the Mesopians. The Mesopian language was a form of Indo-European, and they adapted the Greek alphabet to write their own language. Recorded in some 50 inscriptions, it has been only partially deciphered thus far. The language became extinct as its speakers adopted Latin or Greek. Relations weren't always peaceful, though, as the Tarentines would be in conflict with the Mesopian town of Brentesian, or the Latin Brundisium, and modern Brindisi. The Sybarites feared that the Dorian city might creep west around the peninsula and south along the coast and occupy the fertile lands between them, so they induced the Achaeans to found a colony at Metapontion. Latin Metapontum. At the western entrance to the peninsula, around 700 BC, Metapontion thus was the northernmost Achaean colony, cutting off the western expansion of Taros, off the peninsula. But it flourished as an agricultural community in its own right. Around 680 BC, the Locrians from central Greece established a city with the same name on the southeastern shore of Italy, in the region of Calabria. Zaleucus, known as the earliest of the Greek lawgivers, 
drew up a legal code for the Locrians. It is the earliest known stone inscription of laws. He decreed that anyone who proposed a change in the laws should do so with a noose about their neck, with which they should be hanged if the amendment did not pass. Although the Locrian Code distinctly favored the nobility, Zaleucus was famous for his conciliation of societal factions. No other facts of his life at all are certain. According to legends, he punished adultery with the forfeiture of sight. When his own son was condemned of adultery, he refused to exonerate him, instead submitting to the loss of his own eye instead of his son. Another law that he established forbade anyone from entering the assembly house armed. Faced with an emergency, he did so anyway, but when he was reminded of the law, he immediately fell upon his sword as a sacrifice to the sovereignty of the claims of social order. Thus, the southeastern coastline of Italy was now beset with a line of Achaean cities, flanked at one extremity by northwestern Greek-speaking Locri, and the other by Dorian Teros. The common feature which distinguished them from the cities settled by Halkis and Corinth was that their wealth depended on the land, not on the sea. Their rich men were landowners, not merchants. The Sickles seemed to not give much resistance in Calabria and Sicily and submitted to Greek rule, but the Mesopians were of different temper, and it is significant that it was men from warlike Sparta who succeeded in establishing Teros, but only after bitter and costly struggles with the natives. The 7th century BC saw the Greeks in Sicily start to move away from the eastern coastline. In 688 BC, Gela was founded by colonists from Rhodes and Crete, led by Antiphamus and Entimus, respectively. It essentially was directly west of Syracuse, sitting on the western coastline of the southeastern promontory of Sicily. It would quickly become a flourishing city. The institutions which they adopted were Dorian. Meanwhile, Syracuse too was growing and prospering and was beginning to establish its dominance over the southeastern coastline. They began to establish colonies of their own in the 7th century BC, like Acrae, Casmini, and Acrilla all three of which were situated west of Syracuse in the Hebleian Mountains. They also established Haloris, to the south on the coast. They were all overshadowed by the greatness of their mother city and never attained much independence. But Camarina, which sits south of Gela on the coastline, was founded so the Syracusans could keep an eye on and check the ambitions of Gela eastward. Since Camarina was at a greater distance than the rest of Syracuse's colonies, it had more independence from its mother city. In the late 7th century BC, the Greeks felt as if they outgrew their part of Sicily, and thus expanded westward. Himera was founded around 630 BC, and was the first Greek settlement on the north-central part of the island. As a strategic outpost, just outside the eastern boundary of the Phoenician-controlled northwest, all authorities agree that Himera was a colony of Zankel, but Thucydides tells us that the emigrants from Zankel mingled with a number of Syracusan exiles, resulting in a city with Halkitic institutions and a Doric dialect. Apparently, a clan of prominent citizens, called the Miletidae, were defeated in a civil war and forced out of the city. In any event, in a similar manner, according to Thucydides, around 630 BC, a colony was sent forth by Megara Hiblaea, under the guidance of Pamilus, to the fertile land on the southwestern coast of the island where they established Selenus, or modern-day Selenante. It was the most westerly of the Greek colonies in Sicily, 
and for this reason, they soon came into contact with the native Alemians, who were allied with the Phoenicians. A quasi-stable situation resulted over the following decades in which all three peoples went about their own business and traded with each other to obtain the resources that they desired. In general, the native Alemians prospered from the new status quo, reflective of the large amount of monumental construction undertaken in the period. Obviously, the Sickles were not prospering from the status quo, as the Greeks had driven them out of their best lands. For the most part, the Sakani were not bothered yet. In any event, the Alemians appear to have adopted many aspects of Greek culture, erecting a remarkable temple at Segesta, which was the chief town of the Alemians. Eryx, which sat further west, high above the sea, was their outpost of defense. On Eryx, they worshipped a goddess, which they soon identified with the Greek Aphrodite. They also used the Greek alphabet to write their own language. As of yet, no one has succeeded in deciphering the Alemian language, due to the extremely limited and fragmentary nature of the surviving texts. It is widely believed to have been part of the Indo-European language family, and has been speculated to be related to either Italic or Anatolian languages, such as Hittite, although both of these theories are disputed. Around 600 BC, colonists from Sybaris in southern Italy founded the colony of Poseidonia, Latin Pastum, at a spot chosen for its fertile plain, land access through the Lucanian hills and seaport. It was in the region of Campania, on the western coast of Italy, slightly south of Cumae. According to the Roman historian Strabo, the colonists first built fortifications on the coast before later moving inland to build their city proper. The colony prospered and there arose an important sanctuary and monumental temples dedicated to the Greek goddesses Hera and Athena, which are some of the most preserved to this day. We will cover them in great detail in future episodes. Anyway, with this colony, Sybaris could forward to the ports on the Tyrrhenian Sea the valuable merchandise of Miletus which Halkis jealously excluded from the straits between Italy and Sicily. Thus, both agriculture and commerce formed the basis of the remarkable wealth of Sybaris, and it developed a huge population, thanks to its policy of admitting aliens to its citizenry. Its inhabitants became famous among the Greeks for their hedonism, feasts, and excesses, to the extent that Sybarite and Sybaritic have become bywords for opulent luxury and outrageous pleasure-seeking. Herodotus tells us that the Phocians from Asia Minor were the first to open up the Adriatic and Tyrrhenian seas to the Greeks for trade. In doing so, they established a colony at Massalia, modern-day Marseille, around 600 BC, making it the first Greek settlement in Gaul, or modern-day France. Gaul was inhabited by various Celtic and Ligurian tribes. The ancient Greeks considered the Celts among the nations with the largest population in the world. They also created myths about their origins. According to one tradition, the Cyclops named Polyphemus and the Nereid Galatea were the parents of Galatus, while in an alternative version, Heracles fathered Galatus during his wanderings in Western Europe. Regardless, Galatus was the ancestor of the Gauls. The ancient Greeks used two names for the Celts, Celtae and Galatae. Hellenistic folk etymology connected the name of the Galatae to the supposedly milk-white skin of the Gauls, as Gala is Greek for milk. However, it is probably related to the Celtic word Galu, meaning strong, valiant, or prominent. 
The Gallic tribe the Greeks first came into contact with was the Ligus, or Ligarians, who inhabited southern France and northwest Italy on the Mediterranean coastline. They spoke the little understood Old Ligurian language, which is generally believed to have been an Indo-European language with both Italic and Celtic influences. Because of the strong Celtic influences on their culture, they were also known by the Greeks as Celto-Ligus, or Celt-Ligurians. According to Thucydides, while the Phocians were founding Massalia, they defeated the Phoenicians from Carthage in a sea fight, who presumably were challenging their existence in the west. This will not be the last time that the Phocians hear from the Carthaginians, though. In any event, Massalia's foundation has a legend behind it. According to Aristotle, while exploring for a new trading outpost for Phocia, Protus was invited inland to a banquet held by Nanus the chief of the local Celt-Ligurian tribe, for suitor seeking the hand of his daughter, Gyptus, in marriage. At the end of the banquet, Gyptus presented the ceremonial cup of wine to Protus, indicating he was her choice. Following their marriage, he was given the right to receive a piece of land, where he founded a settlement that grew into Massalia. In any event, regardless of the warm welcoming legend, the Greeks had recurrent conflicts with the Celt-Ligurians of the region who imaginably so believed that they were going to encroach inland into their territory. But this never happened, and eventually a peaceful, prosperous relationship began. In fact, archaeological evidence from Massalia shows that they didn't have a large agricultural territory under their direct control. However, Massalia became one of the major trading ports of the ancient world, as it had a good harbor and commanded the trade route into the interior up the river Rhone. Massalia became a critical hub from which Greek culture was spread to the other Celtic peoples of Gaul and Central Europe. However, there wasn't a so-called Hellenization of southern France like we see in other places. The locals weren't trying to imitate Greek culture, but the Greeks did bring the cultivation of wine to the region, which they enjoyed quite a bit. The chief exports back to the mainland Greeks from the Gallic region were tin, spices, wheat, and slaves. According to Herodotus, the first Greek to land in Spain was a sea captain named Calais from the island of Samos, who was ostensibly on his way to Egypt when an easterly wind blew his ship off course until he landed eventually in Tartessus, a semi-mythical harbor city on the southwestern coast of the Iberian Peninsula, beyond the Pillars of Heracles. Here, he and his sailors were well received by the king, whose name, Arganthonius, man of the Silver Mountain, gives a clue to the mineral wealth of the area. They exchanged goods, and Coleos returned to Samos with a vast cargo of silver, the likes of which had never before been brought back by any Greek ship. What remains uncertain is whether Coleos was really bound for Egypt, or whether some Phoenician rumors of great wealth in the western Mediterranean spurred him to make the journey. It could very well be the latter. These early contacts with southern Spain suggest an active commercial contact with the Tartessians, but Greek colonization in that area was checked by the Carthaginians, who dominated the southern and southeastern coastlines. Greek commercial expansion, however, did find an opening along the northeastern coast of the peninsula. Around 575 BC, the Phocaeans followed up their settlement of Massalia by founding Emporion, modern Ampurias, on the northeastern coast of Spain. Although Emporion was never to acquire the status of Massalia, it became the principal commercial settlement for all of northeast Spain 
and Greece's major town in the Iberian Peninsula. The Greeks did not penetrate far inland, nor did they mingle much with the Iberians. For example, the ancient plans of the city of Emporion reveal a wall that divided the Greek district, which extended inland for about a thousand feet, from the native section. Thus, it's difficult to calculate the influence that Greeks had on Iberian culture. It seems the Carthaginian influence was too strong, and the region seems to have been considered, at least according to the Greek literary sources, a distant and remote land by mainland Greeks. In any event, the Greeks now had a foothold in the northwestern corner of the Mediterranean, much to the chagrin of the Etruscans and Carthaginians. According to Diodorus Siculus, as early as 580 BC, the peaceful status quo on western Sicily was upended, as the Greeks were engaged in hostilities with the Elimians of Segesta, whose territory bordered Selenus, when a body of emigrants from Rhodes and Cnidus, led by Pentathlus, attempted to colonize an establishment opposite Macha on the western coastline. The Phoenicians invoked their alliance with the Elemians, and their combined military force defeated the Greeks and drove them back. The first such recorded conflict between the Greeks and the Phoenicians. During the battle, Pentathlus was slain. In the aftermath, Macha was fortified with defensive walls and watchtowers. The Phoenicians knew that true defense against the Greeks, though, would only come in the form of a military alliance with the powerful Etruscans of central Italy. Subsequently, those would-be colonizers from Rhodes and Cnidus moved on from Sicily to found Lepara, the largest of the Aeolian islands in the Tyrrhenian Sea, off the northern coast of Sicily. The Greeks there kept watch against the descent of Etruscan pirates. The battle, though, didn't settle anything, and boundary disputes and hostilities between Segesta and Selenus would continue and even broke out into open warfare on several occasions in 6th century BC. According to Herodotus, the other side of Selenus's territory extended as far southeast as the river Halicus, modern Platani, at the mouth of which Selenus founded the colony of Heraclea Minoa in the mid-6th century BC. At the same time, Gela too was flourishing, so much so that around 580 BC, Colonists from Gela, led by Aristonus and Cytilus, founded the agricultural colony of Acragus, modern Agrigento, halfway along the coast between their own city and Selenus. Acragus grew rapidly, soon outstripping its mother city in size and prosperity, and became one of the richest and most famous of the Greek colonies of Sicily. It didn't have a very good harbor but the surrounding countryside was well-suited for richness and agriculture. Acragus came to prominence under the tyrant Phalaris, who ruled from 570 to 554 BC. According to Aristotle, he was entrusted with the building of a temple of Zeus and took advantage of his position to make himself despot. We will discuss the phenomena of tyranny in a few episodes down the road, but under his rule, Acragus attained considerable prosperity. He expanded the city's influence in the surrounding territory and built their impressive fortification walls. He also supplied the city with a water supply and adorned it with many beautiful buildings. According to Diodorus Siculus, the tyrant became famous in legend because of his innovative approach to executions. The condemned were put inside a huge, hollow bronze bowl, which was then heated over a fire. Belarus was tickled by the screams coming from inside the bowl 
which made it seem like the animal was bellowing with rage. Some scholars have proposed a connection between Phalaris's bull and the bull images of Phoenician cults, like the biblical golden calf to Baal, and hypothesized a continuation of Near Eastern human sacrifice practices. This idea has subsequently fallen out of favor. The story of the bull, though, cannot be dismissed as pure invention. The poet Pindar, who lived less than a century afterwards, expressively associates this instrument of torture with the name of the tyrant. The later Christian writer, Tatian, alleges that he engaged in cannibalism by eating babies. Obviously, we must take that with a huge grain of salt, as Christian writers were notorious for exaggerating the atrocities of previous pagan rulers. Regardless, he was renowned for his excessive cruelty. Phalaris himself is said to have tasted his own cruelty and was killed himself in the brazen bull when he was overthrown by an uprising, led by Telemachus. Meanwhile, the Phokians from Massalia had grown strong enough that they too planted colonies at Olbia on the northeastern coast of Sardinia and at Alalia on the eastern coast of Corsica around 560 BC. When the city of Phokia itself fell to Cyrus the Great of Persia in 546 BC, more on that in future episodes, the Phokians of Asia Minor fled westward to their colonies at Emporia and Massalia. Some of the Phokians stopped in southern Italy, where they founded Elia, a little south of Poseidonia, on the Tyrrhenian coastline, making it the last of the Greek settlements in Italy during this period of colonization. Elia would become famous for their school of pre-Socratic philosophy. There will be more on this in future episodes. In establishing their maritime trade network, the Phoenicians and Greeks felt the threat of roving bands of pirates looking for ships laden with exotic goods. The response was advances in shipbuilding that eventually culminated in the supreme warships of the age. The earliest known ship type used by the Greeks was the Pentaconter, Pentacontros in Greek, a versatile long-range ship used for sea trade, piracy, and warfare, capable of transporting freight or troops. They emerged in an era when there was no distinction between merchant and warships. It was written by 50 oarsmen, its name literally means 50 oared and was arranged in two rows of 25. The Pentaconchers were also equipped with a sail and a midship mast for propulsion under favorable wind. They were also very long, and thus were also described as Nismakrai, or long ships. Modern estimations have placed their length between 92 and 108 feet long. The Pentaconter eventually evolved into the Byreme, which in turn became the Trireme, the bireme was invented by the Phoenicians sometime in the 8th century BC, but was not used by the ancient Greeks, because shortly thereafter, the trireme was invented. According to Thucydides, Corinth was the first place in Greece where triremes were built in the late 8th century BC. This was interpreted by later writers, Pliny and Diodorus Siculus, to mean that triremes were invented in Corinth. However, it is just as likely to be an invention of the Phoenicians. The trireme, from the Greek Trieris, which means three rowers, featured three decks with three rows of oarsmen on each side. The Byreme obviously had two, but it wasn't given an official name until the Roman period, as it became very popular amongst the Romans, when they finally built a navy, that is. Thus, it is assumed that the term Pentaconter also was used for the two rowed types as well. In any event, the Trireme was so special because it was bigger faster and more maneuverable than any previous warship. It featured two sails, a large and small one, 
to catch transferring winds in a large deck near the prow, where archers could stand and rain down arrows onto enemy ships. These ships were typically manned by crews of 200, along with a captain, helmsman, and a few dozen experienced warriors. But the most potent invention was the massive bronze ram, called the Embolos, secured at the end of the prow, used to tear holes into the side of the enemy ships. The pentaconters and triremes were both affixed with this new invention. We don't have much evidence of naval warfare early on, but whatever naval battles were fought in the 7th century BC were fought mainly with pentaconters, however. The naval warfare tactics of the day were fairly straightforward. You either rammed and sunk the enemy ship, or boarded and seized it in close combat. The trireme was designed for a day-long journey with a maximum distance of about 60 miles and lacked the capacity to stay at sea overnight. The storage facilities on board were only enough to provide each crewman with two gallons of fresh drinking water, but little room for additional provisions. Thus, they were dependent on either the merchant ships that they escorted, or local resources from where they would dock each night. By the 6th century BC, the triremes were widely used by both the Greeks and Phoenicians and accompanied their trading ships through the treacherous Mediterranean waters. So there you have it. The Greeks have been busy colonizing the west. We now have major Greek settlements in the central and eastern half of Sicily, pushing right up against Phoenician and Elemian settlements. We have settlements in central and southern Italy, right up to the edge of Etruscan and Roman territory. We also have commercial outposts in Spain, France, Corsica, and Sardinia that weren't exactly making the Carthaginians and Etruscans very happy either. Colonization in the West was a double-edged sword for the Greeks. It helped to alleviate their land hunger issues and establish lucrative trade networks, but it also brought them into territorial conflicts with some of the strongest powers to come out from the Iron Age. The Phoenicians initially did not resist a Greek expansion. In fact, as we learned in Episode 9, they were the ones to guide the Greeks out of the Dark Age and even established joint trading posts with them. But after over two centuries of peaceful relations, things began to sour. The Greek encroachment on western Sicily, combined with the establishment of colonies in Spain, France, Corsica, and Sardinia, was beginning to make for a very crowded western Mediterranean. The Phoenician colony of Carthage definitely was feeling the pressure. By the mid-6th century BC, Carthage had finally grown up and thus stepped forth as the leader of the Phoenician resistance to the Greeks. The seeds of discord have been sown, and as a result, the ensuing 6th and 5th centuries BC would be a period of intensified conflict and eventually outright warfare in the West. But that will be a topic for another episode. I don't want to get too far ahead. On the next episode, we will shift our attention to the East, as the Greeks were also establishing colonies on the Thracian, Anatolian, and African coastlines. Meanwhile, Lydia is becoming a major power in Anatolia and is increasingly growing hostile to the Asiatic Greeks. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 15, Colonization and the East. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes onto your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you are checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast.
I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Lament of Simonides from his album The Ancient Greek Lyre. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientlyre.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.